are you? And where are you going? What do you want? For the next 24 minutes, we're going to design and attain your ideal life. On the Way to Wow Show. Together, we'll find the ideal path to get you back on the track to success and happiness. On the Way to Wow Show with your host, Kevin Bemmel. Hola, and welcome to eccentric Los Angeles. More specifically, Welcome to Jiggers' place. Jiggers was my Jack Russell Terrier that I had for many, many years. Was, originally was my wife's dog, but I, I stole his affections. He was really the most charismatic dog I ever met. We would walk down the street and people would stop me because they wanted to meet my dog. And I, so I made up a motto for Jiggers and it was that there are no strangers in the world, just friends we haven't met yet. In any event, I hope you'll join us here each week when we talk with some of the most interesting and innovative people when it comes to living the life that you want and answer two questions together. Who are you and what do you want? We're going to find out here at Jigger's Place. Where do you need to boost your health? Here, Megan, this is a little gift from Brandon. Why don't you try Thank that out? You. Tell me what you think. Cheers. Cheers. Delicious. A, a genuine old-fashioned, <laughs> huh? Love it. My next guest is Megan Redarath. She's a uh, adva certified advanced nurse practitioner, right? Perfect. You got that right? You Perfect. got it. More importantly, perhaps, she's the chief medical officer for Next Health. This is a health optimization organization. And a, a little, you know, snippet of personal information. Um, almost a year ago, I showed up at Next Health's door, referred by a, a friend of mine who's a sleep specialist. And you know, at the time, I was uh, overweight. Sometimes my energy level was so bad, I would get up in the morning, and I would—it would be all I could do not to crawl into bed an hour later. Within four months of working with Megan and her team. I had dropped weight down to an optimal level. I was sleeping well. I had energy. In fact, I had the energy to put together this show. <laughs> so, so in a way, Megan, you're responsible for us being here today. I'm going to let Megan talk about the work that she's doing. Um, and, and just start out, tell me, what do you feel are the, if you will, signs of optimum health? Yeah, I mean, that is, first off, thank you for having me. Um, but really, I think now, today, more than ever, we are taking and defining what health is. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, uh, and we're seeing our, our health is being put to the test. So I like to view health is on like a pillar, or maybe better yet for the context of this conversation, like a bar stool. So at the seat of that bar stool, we see if I can choose, it says optimal health. And the five things that I think are the foundation of optimal health are, the first is uh, biomarker testing. So understanding where is your current health state at today, and how do we make pivots to get those values to where we want them to be. 
Uh, the second thing we would consider through optimal health is sleep. So what are your sleep patterns? What type of sleep or what type of quality of sleep are you getting? The third would be nutrition. So what type of diet are you consuming? Uh, the fourth would be movement or exercise. Um, not just working out with your trainer every day, but what does moving your body look like? And the last would be stress management. So mindfulness, meditation, any sort of aspect of where you're going to be coming back to yourself and focusing on uh, eliminating that stress. So that's interesting because aside from the biomarkers, which is how, as a professional, I guess, you determine whether someone's making progress. So you've got sleep, diet, and exercise, which are the three realms of the physical pillar and the three pillars of attainment. And then you've got mindset, which is one of the realms in, in the mental pillar. So we're exactly aligned on that. So talk to me, first of all, give me an example, if you would, about what is a biomarker? I mean, it, it sounds, you know, very, you know, mysterious and scientific, but see if, you know, for those of us who, I, I, my wife is an RN, has had no impact on my ability to understand healthcare matters. So, so talk to, you know, a complete lay person. So biomarker testing is taking the scientific numbers that we have studied for example, your hemoglobin A1C. That's a cumulative report of the last four months of everything you've taken into in to eat. So alcohol consumption, food consumption, everything you've eaten. And it gives us an overall average of what your blood sugar value typically is. But then the second factor of that is looking at insulin. How does your body respond to the food, the nutrition, the alcohol consumption that you're putting into your body? So it's looking at more of a cumulative factor, looking at things like hormones, aspects that are dictative or uh, allowing us to see into your health from a larger perspective. So that before you get to the degree of a disease, before you get to the degree of a chronic ailment, we're able to take these biomarker lab values and make impressions on them prior to you developing a chronic disease. Well, that's fascinating. Although it is a little bit scary that you can look at my hemoglobin, I guess, and see what there's. There's no hiding. <laughs> no cheating with no me. No cheating, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, did you get arrested for what's in that report? The A1C. You know, that's that's. I mean, you know, you get pulled over for uh, you know having what overly alcoholic hemoglobin or something. I guess. <laughs> um, so, talk talk about sleep. So. Uh, you know, we live in a highly stressful society, and I know for myself, I've struggled with sleep my whole life, and, and it, it took me years to really understand what it meant to sleep well. T tell, tell us about that, please. And when, we, when I look at health, what I think we're missing in, in our society is we can't just look at the, the disgruntled sleep patterns that you have. We have to come back out, take a few steps out, and understand what is getting you to those poor sleep patterns. And that is not just you have poor sleep, but what are your hormones? When you're not sleeping, you don't produce hormones. So I, I, it's very difficult for me to say it is only your disrupted sleep that's causing your sleep to continue to get worse. There's always a multitude of factors. And going back to the pillar, we go in and I evaluate what vitamin deficiencies are you lacking? What is your melatonin level production like? You know, how are you moving your body? How are you exercising? And we're a, when we're able to impact the five main pillars of our health, we start to see every other pillar, every other aspect incorporates into really the overall systemic function and the improvement in our body. So when we go and look at sleep, for example, mm -hmm. we want to see our body go into 
a cumulative five to seven sleep-wake cycles. And that's not you waking up, but it's the degree or the amount of REM sleep that you're actually accumulating through one night of restful sleep. So when, you know, most of the time I'll ask people, how many hours of sleep do you get? So you, let's say you're averaging seven to eight hours of sleep per night, but what is the quality of that sleep? That is most important. So there's great tracking devices, you know, the Aura Ring, there's so many different devices that you can track your sleep. And that's what's most important is the quality of your sleep, not just the quantity of your sleep. So if you're getting poor sleep, your inflammatory markers are going to be high the next day. You have a 64% chance of increasing your metabolic response the following day. So you make poor food choices. It's difficult to concentrate. It's more difficult to focus just with one night of poor sleep. So when we're looking at the overall, you know, how optimal are you? How optimal is your health? We can't just say it's your sleep because lack of exercise, lack of movement, you know, high stress, all of these factors are contributing to poor quality sleep. So, you know, we want to look at a couple things when we're just, you know, simply talking about sleep is what is your sleep hygiene like? Like what is your bedtime routine? You know, limiting screen time before and making sure you have a good sleep hygiene prior to going to sleep, but then really tracking your sleep. What type of sleep quality are you actually getting? And that's when we can do a deeper dive and say, how do we fix your sleep? Because fixing just your sleep isn't going to fix your experiences that you're, you know, noticing the following day, like your brain fatigue, you know, poor workouts or poor performance. So in order to get a true, you know, quantitative result of sleep, looking at biomarkers leads us into impacting numbers to help improve the quality of your sleep. So, uh, and, and I'm trying to put this in my own words and make sure that I'm getting this. So it sounds like what you're saying is um, sleep is, is one factor in a more holistic approach to optimizing our health, would that be completely it, okay? Yeah. So, so then, w- would you say it's it's the same thing with respect to to diet, with respect to movement or exercise, even with respect to um, stress or mindset? Each one of those is just one piece of putting this overall puzzle together. Completely. And, you know, when we look at the amount of nutrition, you know, one of the pillars in my perspective of, of health optimization is nutrition. And even within the last nine years, we've been studying the amount of iron in our spinach. And the amount of iron in our spinach has declined by 97%. So even if we are eating an organic, healthy diet, our, our foods are nutrient poor. They're not nutrient dense. So, you know, understanding where are your vitamin, de- uh, where are your vitamin deficiencies, where are your micronutrient deficiencies, because if your cells are nutritionally depleted, no matter what impact that you have of, you know, working on your sleep, your body doesn't have a high functioning cell in order to perform what its specific function is for. So for example, let's say you have a brain cell and you have poor sleep. Well, a couple, you know, a micronutrient or depleted cell or a poor functioning mitochondria, that brain of your cell, your the cell function is not going to be carried out effectively. And then couple poor sleep on top of it. So we very it's very much a compounded effect. So if we can begin to address kind of these five main pillars, we work on your exercise, we work on your sleep, we work on your nutrition, we start to see all of them, even with an improvement in your nutrition. Nutrition, a 
alone, we start to see an impact in your sleep as well. So it's literally looking at the big, you know, five components of that healthy or health optimization and where we want you to go that's going to allow us to achieve an improvement of your sleep by addressing all of those main foundations as well. So I can, I can almost hear this question boiling up from the production team, you know, that's surrounding us. I mean, this all sounds great, um, you know, eat well, you know, sleep better, pay attention to my sleep hygiene, all, all these things. Um, sounds like a lot of work, a lot of, a lot of self-discipline. And, I, you know, I, I, I forget if I mentioned before, but, you know, I, I tried dieting for, you know, a couple of years um, you know, before I came to see you folks, and um, I, I think I managed to gain a pound, you know, that kind of, right, right? so it's just, it's so frustrating. So um, if, if we want to optimize our health, how do we get started in a way, um, in particular in a way that, that is sustainable, and, and you know what I'm saying, because there's nothing more frustrating than, oh, you get started, and then it, oh, oh, finally you just throw up your hands, I'm, I'm done. Yeah, and, and the, beautiful thing about today is we have so many different health platforms. It's almost now today, it's, we're, we're drinking out of a, a fire hose. There's so much information coming at us. But the, the big plan, and you, know, you can say I've, I've tried the diet, I've you know, done the workouts, and I actually gained weight. That is key. That is key for any person that I see is when you acknowledge it, you are, are in realistic expectations of what you want. But I think the reason most diets fail, most you know, health objectives fail is because one, it maybe wasn't your objective to begin with. And so when you're looking to get healthy, it's defining what does that look like for you. And I always ask my patients, what are your top three health goals? And maybe they can't describe it in a way that I understand, but repeating that goal back. You want to lose weight, but you want to lose, you know, how much weight? You want to lose three pounds of weight, five pounds of weight, but why? So what is that motivating factor? Is it to fit in that dress? Is it to look better? Is it to feel better? What is that motivator for you? And a lot of times it has nothing to do with that personal's individual goal. It has to do with someone else. So I think really getting a good description, working with someone who is is that uh, that focused on meeting your goals, rather than coming to me and saying, um, you know, my goal for you is going to be a little bit different than what you want to achieve. But ideally, we'll meet on, in, meet in the middle, because as as a health optimization practitioner, I want to make sure I'm setting you up for success, and that looks like meeting your goals and objectives as well. But you know, it's also important to understand that if you tried 50 times to lose weight and failed all 50 times, I'm confident that when you're working with the right practitioner to understand what are your health goals and what are your health objectives, those goals will be met. And it starts with coming up with a plan that is achievable. So maybe it's not losing 20 pounds right away, maybe it's losing three. And it's understanding what is contributing to that weight gain. What is contributing to those things that are causing you to gain weight? And for a lot of people, it's interrupted sleep. If you're having interrupted sleep, there's no way you're going to be able to lose weight. How are you exercising? How are you moving your bodies? Believe it or not, there's not one study for women suggesting you should continue to do high-intensity interval training. Some people have genetics that say you should not do high-intensity interval training, and instead you should do more body weight training. So understanding and finding someone who's going to work with your specific health goals and objectives and coming up with an actionable treatment plan that's, act that's achievable on a day-to-day -day basis. And I, I feel like... 
everyone is getting giving all of this information and we're trying to drink it out of a water hose and it's too much um, and it's you know people get very specific in 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 one people become very uh, specific and very knowledgeable in one diet type in one uh, one element or one specialty but in all actuality when you can compound those effects and improving those five pillars you're going to notice a benefit in so many other so many other avenues so it's really finding someone who can help understand your goals and break it down and come up with with realistic uh, time frames of when you're going to achieve those goals because eating healthy is a lot of work changing and modifying your sleep is a ton of work and all of this is incredibly frustrating because if you are spending and committing the time and the money um, to to change your nutrition change how you eat change your sleeping patterns you're going to want to see a benefit or change see a result um, and so it's it's coming up and helping someone really break down the science of what is stopping you from getting there and being able to change those to help get you to where you need to go so last question what is a question, and I know you've, you've been interviewed many, many times, what is a question you've always wanted to be asked in an interview and never have? Do blondes have more fun? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the answer they is? Do. They do. They do. Yeah. Well, I've seen your Instagram feed, and if there's anyone having more fun than you, I'm not sure who she is. Well, so Megan, before we go, um, we have your thing here for our collage. Um, we're, we're building a collage up here on this board behind, uh, up above the fireplace. If you want to go ahead and, and stick that up there, just any old place. Doesn't have to be, you know, it can be, or it doesn't have to be, you know, square to the, the grid. It can be at an angle or wherever you, wherever you want it to be. I'm going front and center. Front and center. All right, and Brandon, you've got your thing here. Why don't you come and, uh, and, and paste this up there as well? Okay. Again, any, any I'll just place? be like her rhythm guitar player for her. Oh, uh, yeah, feed go. right into Perfect. that optimal sleep. <laughs> so, Brandon, Megan, thank you very much for being here. It was such, the cocktails were delicious. The information, amazing. Thanks for being on the Way to Wow Show. Thank you. What are the purpose and mission supporting your identity? So this is from Rhino, our, oh. our favorite bartender, right? Awesome. All those, all those years. Cheers. Cheers. One of my favorites. Yeah. So an atheist and a rabbi walked into a bar. <laughs> now, coincidentally, the bar happened to have been lost property, one of the uh, establishments that our friend Rhino Williams started. It's on the corner of Hollywood and Vine, a very famous intersection and thus started a conversation that goes on to this day on every subject that you can imagine. And um, um, I, I tell people about my friend Michael Hartman, and, and they, they say, but, 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 but he's an atheist. <laughs> and I say, mm, yeah, he's the most Jewish atheist I've ever met. Um, but, you know, it's in good terms because um, Michael seems to feel that I'm the most atheistic Jew he's ever met. So, you know, it's, it's, it does the doubles, right? Yeah. Uh, we met every Tuesday night at Lost Property, um, sometimes, you know, creating a little bit of a crowd. Like, what are these two guys talking about here? And I think we've, we've solved pretty much all of the world's problems at this point. That's how I remember it. Yeah, okay, well, you know, <laughs> after three or four drinks, it's pretty easy to remember that way. So... I think people have the wrong idea about what it means to be an atheist, honestly. How did you come to this? Because you, you didn't grow up 
as an atheist, right? Right, right? So how did you come to um, understand the world in the way that you do, if that's a fair question? Sure. Um, so I was, I was raised a Jehovah's Witness, as you know, and when I became a teenager, um, a few di different things happened, and I started to realize that I didn't necessarily agree with that um, only the Jehovah's Witnesses would be saved, that they were the only people who were good people. And, as, and that upset me. And I actually went through a period that I kind of describe as spiritual suicide, where I basically felt that I was going to die because I was not a Jehovah's Witness and that I wasn't going to, to do those things. Um, and But I, I felt that if there really was a God, there was a, living, a loving God, that he would not only restrict to a particular faith or a particular belief system. But I still believed it. Like, I still remained uh, a believer in it. And then it was many years later, over the process of learning more about biology and astronomy and physics and things like that, that I just increasingly didn't see a need for God. And then it was, uh, eventually I realized that although I could not and will not exclude the possibility of God, I didn't believe in a God. And that's when I started calling myself an atheist. But I, I think I'm not necessarily like other atheists in the fact that I'm not what I would call an anti-theist. I'm not against religion. I think religion is important. I think it adds a lot of value. There's a lot of culture there. And I, so I don't want to see it eliminated, um, and I appreciate it. I think it adds a lot of value, but I personally don't see the need for God. Okay. And so, um, so many things you, you said are, are so interesting. Um, I mean, we've talked about this. So from a Jewish perspective, like we don't believe that you have to be Jewish in order to have a relationship with God or, or, or go to heaven or, or something like that. And I remember in college, a college friend of mine saying to me, and he was he was a practicing Catholic at the time. He, he said he said you know one of the biggest problems I have is 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 that I'm supposed to believe that you're going to hell. No. And I said well you know like Mark Twain it might be okay. Probably a lot of my friends are there you know. <laughs> uh, um, so talk a little bit about uh, so I I perceive you as a as a deeply spiritual person, mm. right? So talk about if you would. Where, where that spiritual nature or where that spiritual spark for you comes from? Well, you know, I think it's interesting because I don't consider myself spiritual. And I don't think an atheist can be spiritual because of the definition of the word. So technically, I don't. However, I think that spiritualness is, I think there's value in it. Um, I, I see the, I see it as a, understanding of, of feelings, emotion, in, uh, intuition, and that sort of thing. And so I don't want to throw the, the baby out with the bathwater, as they say, you know. And, and so, for example, if I have a friend who is religious and they're going through a tough time, I might encourage them to pray. I don't think they're talking to God. I think they're conducting introspective meditation. But I'm not really concerned about the metaphor that they're using, which is how I see it, they may really believe it, and that's fine, as long as it's not causing harm. I mean, for me, 
I'm totally okay with religion, except when it starts to cause harm to particularly other people, but also to the individual if it's someone I care about. But for the most part, I don't see that. And so a lot of times people will think that I'm a spiritual person. And it's kind of a struggle because on one hand, I want to correct them. But on the other hand, it's like, what is the benefit in doing that? Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's always the balancing between our beliefs and the relationship, right? I find myself in that situation quite often as a rabbi, especially since people are expecting me to behave in a particular way. So, sure, right? sure. Right? Um, you know, another topic that we've talked about many, many times that often um, is connected with religion, and, and, and I find among um, religious people, they often think, well, you know, an, an atheist, you know, they, they can't have a strong, you know, moral core because, because that's, that is the exclusive territory of religion. And yet, uh, again, you're one of the most moral people I know. So, I try. <laughs> you succeed. Right? So, so where, where, does, where did that come from? I mean, I, well, for me personally, I kind of feel like it's an innate thing. Um, in fact, my, my journey to become an atheist was somewhat driven by my compassion for other people and my belief that um, it wasn't moral for a choice to be made arbitrarily about a, a person having a particular faith or following a particular set of beliefs. Um, but I, you know, I, I kind of object to the concept because uh, morality, I don't believe, really comes from religion. I think religion is more of a trailing indicator. And um, Professor uh, Mark Smith, who happened to be someone I went to high school with, wrote a book called Secular Faith that talks about this uh, in some detail. But so, for example, for most of the history of Christianity, charging interest rates, charging interest on loans was considered immoral and slavery was okay. And obviously we have <laughs> different beliefs. And we even see today the changing attitudes towards divorce, sexuality, um, and, and things like that. The, the religions have more followed what, or at least this is the argument that's made and I believe, have more followed this morality rather than leading it. And so I think I think that that is interesting. And so, you know, for me, I feel like I have a, a privilege in that I can draw moral lessons not just from a single religion, but I can learn morality from, you know, the, the Christian faith that I was raised in, from talking to you, from Buddhism, from Stoicism, from many sources. And I think, you know, I, I take a personal responsibility and I'm you know, my, my moral values have changed over time as I've learned more. And, and I think, you know, at the very basis, though, is there's a sense of justice. There's a sense of how do I want to be treated? How, do I, how does society function well? And I, and I think it's important to think about those things. All right. So I, and that, that kind of answered, I think, my next question is, um, you know, if, if, there isn't, if, if there is no God, um, you know, who... Um, to whom we're ultimately responsible. So then, you know, why why be moral, right? I mean, that, that's I think that's a, a very central issue, right? And I, I think you kind of you kind of answered that. Yeah, I, you know, one of the examples I think of is if I go on vacation someplace and I eat in a restaurant that I'm incredibly unlikely to eat in again. Why do I tip the server? Um, and it's because that's how I would want to be treated. Like there's a, when I go and sit down to have that meal, I've created an implicit contract that if the service is good, if I appreciate it, that I'm going to tip that person. And I think it's important to follow through 
on those implicit contracts. And, you know, sometimes you don't know what the implicit contracts, if you're in a different country, a different culture, what have you, and you're not going to get it perfect. But I think it's important to try and to, you know, and I think you end up with a serendipitous um, benefit from that. Very good. So I, I, I got the high sign. Unfortunately, we can't do our, our normal three-hour sessions. But <laughs> right. Um, but but uh, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming and, and, and sharing your thoughts. So these are you know deeply personal on, on a certain level. And, and but hopefully um, we can have we can get a better understanding. And, and uh, you know, my hope is 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 rather than make this you know one more battleground that you know, people can, can come together in, in mutual understanding. I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think, I think that, you know, as an atheist, I try not to um, ignore the value of religion. And at the same time, I, I would like religious people to understand that just because I don't believe there's a God doesn't mean that I don't see value in their beliefs and, and what they have. I guess I think that's the reason why we're <laughs> friends, right? <laughs> Michael, th thanks so much. Thanks for much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. That's our show for this week. Stay tuned next week when my guest will be Jennifer Marcinelli, holistic health specialist and burnout recovery specialist, and Derek Smith, fashion designer and menswear consultant. Courage at all times, my friends. Bell. Still my Marie. <laughs> 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 Courage at all times, my friends. Marie, you're still my bell. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.